My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Jen Cool and Edith McHattie. There are lots of ways that are grounded in questions of justice to be critical about how healthcare happens in this country. These range from the most basic questions about how different populations are able to access healthcare resources, to concerns about how power imbalances between professionals and patients shape decision-making about care, to critiques of pervasive medicalization of everyday life, to radical explorations of how both dominant and supposedly alternative medical practices and discourses are wound together with things like capitalism, colonialism, and patriarchy. Yet none of these provide any basis for thinking that things would improve by compromising the imperfect but still substantial equality of access in the Canadian single-payer model by allowing rich people to pay their way to better care than everyone else, thus making things increasingly like the horrendously unequal and terribly inefficient U.S. system. In British Columbia, a lawsuit is looming that could do just that. After much maneuvering a number of years ago, the B.C. government finally managed to conduct an audit on a private surgery clinic in Vancouver. In looking at just 30 days of its operation, they found that this clinic charged almost half a million dollars of fees to patients that they were not allowed to charge. In response, the clinic's owners and a number of similar clinics launched a constitutional challenge to B.C.'s Medicare laws. If this suit is successful, it could do a great deal to undermine public Medicare in Canada and would create much greater legal space for two-tier, for-profit, privatized care in this country. Jen Cool and Edith McHattie are both involved in the British Columbia Health Coalition, which brings together community and labor groups from across BC to defend and improve public Medicare. Cool is a staffer with the coalition, and McHattie is an occupational therapist and a union representative on its steering committee. In the decade and a half of the coalition's existence, they've engaged in numerous different campaigns online and on the ground, mobilizing both the members of component organizations and the general public. They see this court case as the single largest current threat to public health care in Canada, and they're working hard to prepare their contribution to the proceedings that are scheduled to begin in the B.C. Supreme Court in September. Cool and McHattie speak with me about the work of the BC Health Coalition, the importance of public health care, the legal challenge that threatens it, and ways we can work politically to defend and improve it. We spoke by Skype to phone from British Columbia. My name is Edith McHattie. I'm the co-chair of the BC Health Coalition. The BC Health Coalition is made up of a network of organizations. There's seven community groups and seven labor union groups that sit on the steering committee. So I sit on the committee as a rep for my union, the Health Sciences Association. I'm a healthcare worker. I'm an occupational therapist who works in community pediatrics in a large city just outside of Vancouver. My name's Jen Cool. I'm staff with the BC Health Coalition. 
and I work in the main office, which I want to acknowledge is on unceded Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam territory. And the decisions and agenda of the Health Coalition are set by our incredible steering committee and then a small number of us staff who sort of do some of the day-to-day work. The BC Health Coalition was started around 2002, and it was related to the fact that there was only two seats in the BC legislature that were NDP. And so a couple of labor groups that represented healthcare workers, as well as the Vancouver Women's Health Collective, got together and decided that we really needed a public healthcare watchdog in BC. The Health Coalition came about when labor unions, particularly healthcare unions and community groups, wanted to get together and start talking about public health care because I think they recognized that we'd had a series of governments that had not necessarily supported or invested in our healthcare system. And, you know, back in the 50s when our public health care system was first created in Canada and the Canada Health Act, I think people recognized very quickly how critical it was to protect something like that. So the Health Coalition really came out of a passionate drive to band together because there's strength in numbers. And one thing that I find so interesting about the Health Coalition is that it's a true partnership and a very active working coalition between community groups and labor unions, which is fairly unique in the landscape of nonprofits and other lobby groups. We have seniors organizations from rural BC. We have youth empowerment organizations from downtown Vancouver. We have labor unions represented at the table that represent workers across BC that have national affiliates, but represent everything from transit workers to people who work in the hospital to people who work in community. So it's really quite a diverse group of folks. And so I think the origins of the Health Coalition were really people wanting to stand together and make sure that our public health care was enshrined in BC and that threats of funding cuts and the draining of our health care professionals to both Alberta and the state were addressed with the government, as well as also, I think folks really wanted to be able to respond in an effective way to different current issues, whether it was community hospitals closing down or some policy in the government that people wanted to fight back again or services that people wanted to advocate for. We have monthly steering committee meetings, and we function on the model of consensus. And I think because there's an equal number of community groups and labor groups around the table, usually opinions are pretty balanced. And as Edith said, it's very much a working steering committee. So if we're going to take on action to try to put forward um, an analysis of seniors' care in the province, several members of our steering committee or members of the groups within our steering committee will come together on a smaller committee who then goes about and does the research and assembles the spokespeople who are going to talk about seniors care. And because we're often working with our partners and really rely on the member organizations to be the hands of the organization in the community, we manage to strike a unique balance of getting to a common goal. That's not to say that it's always smooth sailing, but I think having the consensus model built in from the beginning has meant that there seems to be a fair amount of trust around the table, which as a staff member is really, really remarkable to see it. 
this is my first experience working as part of a coalition, and it's been really exciting because there are such large organizations represented as part of the steering committee, and there's a number of member organizations and individual members who are also a part of the BC Health Coalition, but not on the steering committee, that we also try to actively engage and involve in decision-making processes and input into campaigns. One of the things that we did this past fall was we did a strategic planning day and we came up with three or four main priorities to help us focus our work as a BC Health Coalition. And that was a very participatory day. And the second phase of that strategic plan will be going out to the wider membership and saying, hey, what do you think we should be responding to and what are the current issues in your communities that are happening around public health care? So some of our priorities include influencing decision makers in the political landscape, mobilizing the public, and monitoring the public health care system. The public health care system is obviously our focus, but we do also try and respond to issues that maybe are outside the healthcare system but impact public health. So if you were having a conversation with a random resident of BC, what kind of case would you make for specifically public health care? and for the importance of acting to protect and improve and invest in it. I love talking to people about public health care because our experience as a health coalition, but also me as an individual, is generally that people love talking about public health care <laughs> at the doorstep or on the street. For me, public health care is one of the greatest accomplishments that I think we have in our society, in our country, because it offers everyone the same high quality care, whether you're very wealthy or whether you are homeless. I think it really speaks to my value of justice and equal access, no matter what your life experience is. Public health care can deliver high quality service at a much lower cost than private health care. And we have a very efficient system in terms of administration of our health services, administrative costs. And I think there are many examples, you know, just to the south of us in the U.S. of how outrageous healthcare costs can get with a two-tier system or with private for-profit healthcare services. And I think often where people really feel it is, is seeing those experiences in this state where you have women who have to return to work weeks after giving birth because they have to pay for their time spent in hospital. And you have families that, you know, have the tragedy of a child with cancer and then are facing massive hospital bills. And we're so fortunate to not have to make that choice in Canada. Sometimes when you talk to older folks who remember the time before we had Medicare, I talked to a woman who said, you know, I fell and I broke my arm and my parents waited the whole weekend because they had to decide whether it was really hurt badly enough to spend the money that we needed for other things like groceries before they could take me to get medical care. And the public health care system, while I will certainly admit it is not perfect and it could be changed, there are challenges that we are facing within the healthcare system that really need to be addressed so that people are served better. But the fact that, like Edith said, it's public and it doesn't matter what your economic status is, the ability to access care and not have to be deciding whether you're, like I said, paying for groceries or paying for rent or going to the hospital is a really remarkable thing when it comes to decisions about quality of life. Tell me about some of the campaigns that the BC Health Coalition has done. The longest term campaign that we've been working on is preparing for this case. But as we wait for that case to go to trial, we've had the opportunity to work on some other issues. 
So the most recent campaign that we worked on was in collaboration with a group out of Ontario called bloodwatch.org. And it's a campaign to stop paid plasma clinics from opening in British Columbia. We've also had an email campaign trying to get the federal liberals to get rid of Bill C-2, which is the bill that makes it challenging for safe injection sites to open. We know that the new federal health minister is in favor of harm reduction, and so we are encouraging her to make it a little easier for those types of clinics that save people's lives to open in communities. And then we also did a push in the federal election trying to encourage people to vote for public health care. And then on the flip side of that, we were trying to push the parties to have health care solutions in their platforms. So we were asking the parties to commit to renewing the health accord, to bring in national pharma care, national seniors care, to reverse the cuts for health care to refugees, and also to bring in a plan to address poverty. We were trying to push all of the federal parties to have core things that would strengthen healthcare in their platforms. In BC, in the most recent provincial budget, we were hoping that there would be changes to our MSP. So residents of BC are charged a per month fee for healthcare. It's called MSP premium. And the BC government actually makes a ton of revenue on this, but everybody in BC is charged the same rate. There's a little bit of refund if you are quite low income, but otherwise everybody pays the same monthly fee. And so it penalizes lower income or middle income families. Our income taxes definitely need to be paying for our public health care system. And I think we get great value for those tax dollars. But the MSP premiums in particular are incredibly penalizing to people who are lower income. And so we were calling for the BC Liberals to scrap the premiums. But unfortunately, they made very minimal changes. So we had a large email campaign and we're lobbying the government for that. We also get involved in co-publishing or collaborating on research projects. One of the more recent papers was called Living Up to the Promise, and that was about the home support crisis in BC. Our home support system, in terms of supporting older adults to stay at home, is really at a crisis point. Seniors are not getting the care that they need to stay home, and it's clogging our emergency rooms and our hospital beds with people who could be safe to be at home if they had the supports in place in the community. Tell me about the legal challenge and about the BC Health Coalition's decision to intervene in the case. This court case is really the biggest threat that our public health care system in BC and by extension in Canada that we've seen ever. Dr. Brian Day of the Canby Surgical Clinic, which is a private clinic in Vancouver, has been operating for several decades. They perform procedures that are covered by our public health care system, and they charge patients money for it. So it's really at the heart of the reason why the BC Health Coalition exists, which is to defend our public health care or ensure that there's quality public health care for everyone in BC. And so it was not an option for us not to get involved. So we were compelled to apply to be interveners along with the Canadian Doctors for Medicare. So the BC government finally did get permission to audit their clinic in 2009. They did a 30-day audit and found that there was almost half a million dollars of extra billing of patients. So that's where they were charging people large fees for procedures that are supposed to be covered under our public health care system. I think there was about $67,000 worth of overlapping claims as well within that half a million. So that's where they build both our public system and the client for the same procedure. 
what was also shocking was seeing how expensive some of the procedures was. So I think there was an example of one procedure would cost about $1,200 in the public system, but they charged the patient about $7,000 for the actual procedure. So that's just in a 30-day period. The amount of money that clinics like this make is just astronomical. And again, it's, it's been running for several decades. So after the audit happened, after the findings of the audit that found that these clinics had overbilled almost half a million dollars in just 30 days, then Brian Day and several other clinics launched this constitutional challenge trying to take down some the laws in D.C. that protect Medicare. So one of the laws he'd like to see changed is currently if you're a doctor who practices publicly, you can charge a patient for a service, but you can only charge the same amount that you'd get from the public system. So say for like a throat swab, you can charge the public system $15 or you can charge the client individually $15. If the laws were to change after this case, a doctor who makes money publicly, who is paid by the public system, could also charge whatever they want privately. And that is concerning because it means that doctors have a high incentive to spend more time working privately than they do publicly. And in BC, wait lists aren't pooled. So the waiting time that you are given when you go to see a surgeon is that surgeon's waiting time. It's not the waiting time for all the surgeons in the province. So if you have a doctor who's spending three days in his month in the public system and the other 27 days in the private system, you can imagine that his public waiting list would be quite long and his private time would be, like, if the laws were to change, he could charge more for the private time legally and the waiting list would be shorter because that's where he's spending his time. So were these laws to shift the way Brian Day would like them to, it would be very concerning for most people. Yeah, Brian Day likes to talk about, you know, we want to relieve the pressure from the public health care system. And if people have the money, they should be able to choose where they go. It's about choice. But unfortunately, having private clinics doesn't reduce wait times at all. It actually makes them worse because healthcare workers can't be in two places at once. And we already have a significant shortage of many different health professionals in our healthcare system. And so if you drain healthcare workers into a separate private system, then they're no longer available to work in the public system and wait times actually grow. It's just frustrating because there actually are innovative and efficient solutions that we can have in our public system. There's actually good examples of, you know, new ideas or new programs in Vancouver. There was a couple of examples with hip and knee joint replacement at centralized waitlist, and it had a much more organized pre-surgery, pre-operative program for potential candidates for hip replacements and knee replacements. And they found it actually reduced wait times by 60 or 70 percent. It was a really effective program, and that happened in the public system. And so we can improve our wait times, which absolutely need to be addressed, and we could do it for a lot cheaper. This court case is being heard in the BC Supreme Court. It's actually going to trial in September now. There's been a number of delays in the court case for various legal complicated reasons. And I think there's been a great deal of stalling and resistance on the part of Dr. Day. The BC Health Coalition was really quite active in pressuring the BC government to audit this clinic, find out exactly how much money they're making and what illegal billing practices were occurring. And so, yeah, that's why we got involved. What are the key legal issues being raised by both sides in this case? 
I'm not a lawyer, but basically the constitutional challenge that Brian Day is issuing is saying that it infringes on the rights of British Columbians to not be able to pay for healthcare however they want. So it's, you're limiting our freedom of choice to purchase healthcare and that it's impacting our health. That's kind of in general what his argument is because of things like wait times, et cetera. So the BC government, as the main defendants in the case, are upholding our Medicare law that basic necessary health care services will be provided to all British Columbians, paid for through our income tax system, and that no extra user fees or facility fees will be issued to get those services. And the BC Health Coalition's the pieces of evidence that we will be delivering is giving a bit of an analysis of the very negative effects on people's health that happened in the U.S. The U.S. has a two-tiered system, so they have private for-profit clinics, and they also have a pretty bare-bones Medicaid system, and there's enormous administrative costs. It's very expensive, and they get way less services than we do in Canada. So we'll be presenting evidence about the negative impact of the two-tiered system as demonstrated in the United States. And then we'll also be talking about the outcome of the Shayuli case in Quebec. So there was kind of a similar court case that happened in Quebec back in 2005. I think it went to the Supreme Court. It was a challenge to the Quebec Health Insurance Act with similar arguments was that there's long wait times, they violate our human rights to security of persons, to access health care. And so the ruling was binding only in Quebec, and the Supreme Court of Canada did actually rule in favor of the challenge to the Quebec Health Act. So what we're going to do in this court case is talk about the impact of that decision on the health care services in Quebec. So given that legal processes don't tend to be very participatory, what's your sense of what people in this country who are concerned about public health care can do in the political realm to strengthen and protect and improve it? Personally, I would love to see a push for health care that generally serves whole people better. I think part of the reason there is support for cases like this is people don't feel that they're well served by the healthcare system. And we know that everyday lives are saved by the Canadian healthcare system, but I think that access to a family doctor in BC, for example, has been really challenging for a lot of years. And we haven't moved to models like Ontario, where Ontario has community health centers where they have nurse practitioners and physios and doctors in a community health center so that you can get fuller care. In BC, we were stuck with trying to have many doctors' offices functioning on their own. So I would love to see us push for healthcare that serves people better. Edith talked about the living up to the promise paper. I think if we did more to support our elders who want to stay at home to stay healthy in their homes, that would be another way of reducing strains on hospital services that would make healthcare better for people. When Medicare was set up, we needed hospitals. The average age of the population was 25, and that was where the highest needs were, was for hospital care. I think we need to look at our healthcare system as a whole and see where's our average age of our population now, what are the things that that population needs to stay healthy, and how can we serve people better in their communities so that we're not fighting battles to save what we have. We're looking at ways our system can serve people better 
so that shifting to a model where some people can pay for better care is not appealing to anybody. I think having politicians and a government that fully funds community healthcare services and promotes prevention and the full spectrum of a multidisciplinary team like OTs and physios and social workers and nutritionists, as well as nurse practitioners and doctors, like we can deliver excellent healthcare in the community. And I think there's so much that we could do to keep people out of hospitals. And what we've been doing so far in our healthcare system, if you look over the last 50 years, we've been incredibly reactive in our health policy in terms of putting huge amounts of money into hospital care and medicines and technologies, which have all been really exciting. But I think we need a reinvestment in our community-based care because it's so much more affordable and sustainable. The arguments of this legal case speak to wait lists and that people are feeling a little uncertain. We're told every day by more conservative media and our mainstream conservative politicians that healthcare is too expensive and we can't afford it and we shouldn't expect anything else and we're probably just going to lose those services that we have. But we really need to push politicians to offer bold vision and help people understand that we can absolutely pay for this healthcare system. It's about choices and changing a philosophy around health. So that takes a lot of political courage and leadership. We really urge your listeners to talk about this court case with their friends and family, help people understand what is at stake. We're really relying on Canadians to talk about public health care. There's a lot of money at stake, and so we can expect a a pretty full-fledged media storm full of very strong messages saying why our public health care system is broken and that we need the private clinics to come and rescue us. And so we really do need everybody engaged in the conversation and sharing their opinions. The thing I think I would add is we're not saying that it's acceptable to have really long wait times. What we're saying is that if wait times are something we want to address, we want to see that happen publicly so that those solutions benefit everybody, not just the few people who can pay their way off of a wait list. One of the saddest things about my experience of this case is hearing from people who were told by their surgeon that it was like a four-year wait list, but only a year if they went private. And then they saved money for months and spent thousands on this surgery they couldn't really afford. And then had some sort of complication that then the private clinic didn't want to deal with and were referred back to the public system, where they then learned that if they had gone publicly, it wasn't actually like a four or a seven-year wait. With a different surgeon, it was much shorter. So people in pain are being taken advantage of by clinics who want to charge them a lot of money, and I don't think it should be legal for them to do that. I don't think it should be legal to take advantage of people in pain. So I definitely want to have conversations about creative ways that we can make lists shorter and have healthcare serve people better, but I don't believe that private is the way we should be going. You have been listening to my interview with Jen Cool and Edith McHattie of the BC Health Coalition. To learn more about their work, go to bchealthcoalition.ca. That's bchealthcoalition.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.